One holy Catholic and apostolic? Well, which church can that be? Today, we're going to find out. Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today, we are dealing with the topic which I have been putting off for a very long time. More than one of you, more than two of you, in fact, I would describe it as a bunch of you, have all requested that I do an episode about the authority of the church, maybe defending the papacy, defending the magisterium, defending that there is indeed a singular church, a source of unity with a teaching authority, a leadership authority. Well, I've thought long and hard about how exactly to do this because it's not actually my specialty. What this normally comes down to is the role of Pope, the, the, the Bishop of Rome. And what was he historically? What can we see from Scripture? What do we know about this for sure? And how can we prove it to somebody who might not accept church tradition? Now, there's a lot of good work on this. And I will point you to the work of Swan Sona, Eric Ubarra, who just put out a new book, and Stephen Ray, who wrote the book Upon This Rock. All three of these guys are far better than me at defending the papacy in a very rigorous, ironclad kind of way that I will not simply recapitulate this episode. Instead, I want to take it from a different angle, and I finally thought of one. It's pretty simple. Let me lay it out like this. You could, you could be tasked with finding, a, uh, with finding somebody's head, right? And uh, you could go about this a number of ways. Maybe you find a, an old book that describes this person's head. And then you look around at all the heads that are out there and say, well, hmm, he has brown hair. Well, that rules out these people. He has a big nose. Well, that rules out those people. And eventually kind of come to a picture of what head you're looking for and then find it. At which point you'd find the whole person. I'm going the opposite direction. If you just find the right body, well, then whatever is heading that body just de facto is the right head. Unless there's some strange decapitation and head replacement surgery, which, well, that's quite the burden of proof, if you ask me. Um, that, in fact, would entail the death of that person. And since the church, being a body and having a head, is said to never be defeated, certainly never killed, destroyed, eliminated, um, it will stand to the end of the age, well, then we know there is no decapitation of event. event. So if we can find the body of Christ, the head is going to be the right head. And there's a head in two ways. One, there's a head being that Jesus is the head. But second, there's an earthly head. And this is not without precedent. Who was the leader of the people, uh, of the, the Hebrew people coming out of Egypt? It was God, right, in the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. But who is the earthly leader? Quite obviously Moses. What about the kingdom of Israel? Well, they had God as their king. And they also had an earthly king, King David, who Jesus is a descendant of. Jesus is a type of David, new Messiah, leader of the new kingdom. And we see in scripture that Jesus shares his, his leadership, his headship with an earthly authority. And when does he do it? Well, when he's about to go to heaven, right? Because we need an earthly authority. And he says again and again to, to Peter, do you love me and feed my sheep? Do you love me? Care for my lambs? Do you love me? Then basically be the shepherd here on earth. And that's exactly what we see going on through history. So our tactic here is to find the right body. And if we find the right body, then we'll know that the head on top is just the right head. The way we're going to find this body is we're going to look for four marks. And these four marks of the right body, the right church, um, are laid out in the Nicene Creed. And this creed is accepted by, well, it should be accepted by all Christians, and it actually pretty much is. This is prior even to the the Council of Rome, and I believe 401, which defined the canon of Scripture. This is very early. It's prior to the Great Schism. It's, it's reflecting an apostolic faith, and you can see this in the structure of the Creed itself, because it's built off of and expanded from the Apostles' Creed. So it's aimed specifically at preserving the apostolic faith in ruling out heresy, specifically the Arian heresy. So it's made to be apostolic, to be in accord with the orthodox beliefs, to be, to be widely shared across all churches which are in union with the true faith. 
And if you deny the Nicene Creed, well, that's traditionally put you just outside of Christianity. This is like the line in the sand. I mean, you got to accept the Nicene Creed. Most large Protestant churches at least say that they do. And if you don't, let me ask you this. Why exactly do you think that you know better than the collected wisdom of the early church at such an early time, coming from the entire world, drawing this out of the Apostles' Creed itself, and like rooting out a heresy which is truly bitter and vicious? They were clearly the good guys, clearly quite early, inheriting the deposit of faith from the, the Apostles. What makes you think that you would know Christianity better than them? And if you don't think you do, then maybe you should stick with the creed because you don't have the historical vantage point that they do. Not even close. So I'm going to go ahead and proceed, assuming that everybody listening um, accepts the Nicene Creed. But this creates a bit of a problem for those who are not in the Catholic Church and yet do accept the creed because it says, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And these identifiers point out one church. The Arian churches? Oh, definitely not. It rules them out. Schismatic churches? No, no, no. That's not what it's identifying. Again, the whole point of this council is to identify the true church against false churches, ones who are false because they teach false doctrine, therefore making them heretical. So this is meant to be the mark of the true against the false, the orthodox against the heretical churches. Now, the Methodists, Baptists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, they all confess these lines. However, I'm going to compare this to, it's like if a Democrat, um, somebody in the Democratic Party, said that they believe in one Republican, conservative, and Donald Trump-led party. Well, these identifiers of leadership, exclusivity, ideology, and identity are completely alien to the one confessing it. It's as ridiculous for this Democrat to confess the lines that I just made up as it would be for a Protestant denomination to confess the lines from the creed, one holy Catholic and apostolic. And this is a point that I will seek to prove by the end of this episode. Helping me do this um, is our friend St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, he writes a commentary on the Apostles' Creed, and when he gets to the part about the I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, he expands it out um, using these four marks as a guide, one holy Catholic and apostolic. So we're going to be reading a little bit of St. Thomas and making some comments along the way. Quoting from him, we see that in a man there are one soul and one body, and of his body there are many members. So also the Catholic Church is one body and has different members. The soul which animates this body is the Holy Spirit. Hence, after confessing our faith in the Holy Spirit, we bid to believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Thus, in the symbol, it is said, the Holy Catholic Church. It must be known that church is the same as assembly. So the Holy Church is the same as the assembly of the faithful, and every Christian is a member of this church, of which it is written, Draw near to me, you unlearned, and gather yourselves together into the house of discipline. That's Sirach 51.31. The church has four essential conditions, in that she is one, holy, Catholic, strong and firm, apostolic. Okay, so let's dig into his distinction here. This is a master of metaphysics talking, and he says that the, that the church is matter and form. It has this body, but it has this spirit. So the body analogy, the body of Christ, is the master analogy in all of Scripture for the church. And Paul extends this um, quite extensively in his letters. So what's this form? What's the soul doing? Well, form is the principle of unity, right? And we have a soul. That's our form. It's a, a living form. It's called a soul. And we have one. It's the principle of unity in us. So let me just spell this out a bit, how this would work. I was using a wood chipper the other day. This particular wood chip, chipper was pretty darn safe, but many are not. People have lost limbs in wood chippers. A very bad day indeed. So what would happen if I lost an arm? Would I still be one? Well, 
in a sense, you go, no, you're missing your arm. But in another sense, you go, well, well, yeah, I didn't disappear. There's still a oneness. There's still a, a Jake there. He's just missing an arm. So what would happen to me? Well, I would retain my oneness. However, I did get damaged. I did get assaulted in this. So my unity is not broken with damage to my body. And thus we have an analogy to how we can make sense of Christ's prayer that the church be one. Um, It's one because of the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't become multiple bodies when his flesh was ripped off at the scourging. The scourge of heresy does not make new churches, but it does assault Jesus. It does not assault his unity um, in the scourging any more than the scourge of heresy assaults the unity of the one church. But what about the arm? That's the rest of the body, still has unity. It's damaged, it's hurting, it's assaulted, but it still has its unity. What happens to this arm? What happens when we separate something from the body? Well, a couple things. One, it loses a common sharing of resources. Also, it loses central direction from the head, right? Your arm can no longer move based on signals from the authority, your head. It loses the cause of unity because it's no longer incorporated into that form that subsists in the rest of your body. So, as a result, we should expect this arm to disintegrate, to rot. I know, a gross analogy, but hey, there you go. And we wouldn't expect it to heal because you need this cause of unity to have these self-perfective actions of healing or or growth. I'm not going to find a bigger bicep on that arm because it got stronger. No, it no longer grows, no longer heals. It has no cause of unity. It also doesn't receive any nutrition from its members. So what does that mean for churches which lose unity with the body of Christ? Well, the exact same thing. Any church which breaks from the one church, we will expect to see that it no longer has the central direction from the head. That is what schism is. Also, we'll see that it will slowly lose its sacramental union, right? It's not receiving the nutrients from the, from the heart of Christ. We'll see that it can't heal when heresies strike it. Instead, it can be overcome, perverted, distorted. And we'll see that it will slowly disintegrate. So when a church breaks from the Catholic Church. That's, it's not done breaking. It continues to break down. Why? Because it lost the principle of the unity, the spirit, the soul of the church, the Holy Spirit, which makes the church one. So that's our one. Um, but to say even more of it, Aquinas points out, of the first, it must be known that the church is one. Although various heretics have founded different sects, they do not belong to the church, since they are but so many divisions. Of her, it is said, one is my dove, my perfect one is but one. The unity of the church arises from three sources. One, the unity of faith. All Christians who are of the body of the church believe the same doctrine. Quote, I beseech you that you all speak the same thing and that there is no schism among you. It's 1 Corinthians 1.10. And one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Ephesians 4.5. Here's a few things I want to point out with this. So we'll be breaking down all of his um, causes of unity, all three. And we'll see that they, in a sense, relate to each one of the persons of the Trinity. So I want to point out that schisms are sinful. It is a result of sin. Now, you may disagree who broke from who. You may disagree who, in fact, is wrong in the schism. But what you can't disagree with is that somebody is wrong in the schism. Why? Because it directly disobeys Christ's wish, his prayer, indeed, for unity and Paul's scriptural command. So let me read a little bit more context here, what, what Aquinas is quoting. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there is no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly, perfectly, 
united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. That I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Okay. So, there's a few things he points out. We have to agree with one another. We should have no divisions. We ought to be, and this is quite the bold statement, perfectly united in mind and thought. That was an appeal in the name of Jesus Christ by an apostle sent directly by Jesus Christ. Miraculously knocked off his horse, sees the great light, I may add. Now, the apostle John, in his famous prologue, calls Jesus the logos, the intelligence, the intelligibility, the word, the truth himself. So, the son is most properly the cause and the maximum of all truth. So, to say that we are one, that we are unified, we are one in Christ, while not being one in truth is impossible. That is metaphysically impossible. To be one in Christ, to be part of Christ's one body, means definitionally that we will have a unity in what Christ has brought us, which is the truth. Two, the unity of hope. All are strengthened in one hope of arriving at eternal life. Hence, the apostle says, one body, one spirit, as you are called, in one hope of your calling, Ephesians 4.4. A 4. little bit more context for that quote. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So it seems that Paul certainly wants us to be one, and that is the opposite of what the devil would wish. Devolos literally means the scatterer, the one who breaks apart. But God brings unity, just as he and the Father is one. Jesus and the Father is one. He wants us to be one as well. So what is hope, right? This is the second way. First case, we are we are one in um we, we were one in the faith. We were one in truth. Um, in this case, we're one in hope. Oh, hope is reaching towards that which is not yet seen. What's not seen? Well, the Father. It's desiring and confidently expecting that which is ultimately perfect, which is the Father. The Father is most properly the cause of all perfection. Um, and it should come as no surprise that um, the Father is the one who's referenced here in, um, in Paul's letter when we talk about hope, right? One God, one Father of all, the one who is over all, through all, and in all. Um, so we're unified in truth with Jesus, unified in hope with the Father. And hope orients us towards higher things. The Father, as we know from the fourth way of Aquinas that we always quote from, um, is the cause of all nobility, of all actuality. Nobility relating to a uh, ranking on the hierarchy of being. So the things which are most noble are highest. And hope orients us towards the highest things. And the maximum of nobility, of actuality, of perfection itself is God. Specifically, most particularly, is God the Father. So we are one because we are oriented in hope towards the Father. So here we are unified in our orientation that perfects us, right? This orientation towards the Father and this um, the, the result of that is becoming more like the Father, to be perfected. So what is it in the church that perfects us? Well, it's um, the sacraments. That's the means of grace by which we are drawn to the Father through Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul references in his very next breath. He talks about one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That thing which frees us from sin and joins us initially into the divine life. Um, the cause of our initial, um, the beginning of our perfection. Which leads us to number three. We are meant to be one. The church is one because of its unity of charity. All are joined together 
in the love of God, and to each other in mutual love. And the glory which you hath given me, I have given them, that they will be one, as we also are one. John seventeen twenty two. It is clear that this is a true love when the members are solicitous for one another and sympathetic towards each other. We should in every way grow up in him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, being joined and fit together by every joint which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and builds itself up in charity, Ephesians 4, 15-16. This is because each one ought to make use of the grace God grants him and be of service to his neighbor. No one ought to be indifferent to the church or allow himself to be cut off and expelled from it. Think woodchipper. For there is but one church in which men are saved, just as outside of the Ark of Noah, no one could be saved. Now the Holy Spirit is the love of God poured forth from the Father and the Son. So we are one in love. Why? Because we're one in the Holy Spirit. That is our cause of unity. And let's read a little bit of scripture here. Um, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, uh, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined up and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have been giving themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. So, the body is built up in love. That's what scripture tells us. Um... And why is it built up in love? Well, it tells us so that it is not tossed about by the winds of false teaching. So love here is directed at preserving unity in truth in Christ, in the body of Christ. So love of the Holy Spirit has this this oneness. It brings about this oneness in the church because it guards us against false teaching. So we have these gifts of the of uh, the gift of the apostles given to us, and why? Well, this section begins talking about how the apostles are first in the church, and it gives the explanation running on down, so that we can be built up in the unity of faith. So that's the purpose of having the apostles in its enduring position in the faith to be a cause of unity, to give the knowledge of Jesus, and why? Again, to reiterate to resist false teaching, to grow in love, and to be preserved from sin and the evil ways of the world. So the Holy Spirit is holy, but it also causes holiness. And this is a key way that it does, by giving us these gifts, not just spiritual gifts, but the gift of the office of the apostles for the specific purpose of bringing unity, unity in truth. So how is the church holy? Well, here's what Good Aquinas says, concerning the second mark, holiness, it must be known that there is indeed another, concerning the second mark, holiness, it must be known that there is indeed another assembly, but it consists of the wicked. Quote, I hate the assembly of the wicked, Psalms 25.5, but such a one is evil. The church of Christ, however, is holy. Quote, for the temple of God is holy, which you are, 1 Corinthians 3.17. Hence it is said, the holy church. The faithful of this church are made holy because of four things. Just as a church is cleansed materially when it is consecrated, so also the faithful are washed in the blood of Christ, 
Jesus Christ, who hath loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, Revelations 1, 5, and that he might sanctify the people by his blood he suffered outside the gate, Hebrews 13, 12. So we're going to be breaking down all four of the ways which uh, we can say the church, the one church, the church that we're looking for, um, is holy. You may have heard the uh, the Protestant hymn before called Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. But unfortunately, with the glaring absence of the Eucharist, the hymn really ought to be redacted to simply nothing. Because if we are looking for a holy church, we must find the one with the blood of Christ. And that precludes all non-Eucharistic assemblies. All right, his second reason is, just as there is the anointing of the church, so also the faithful are anointed with a spiritual unction in order to be sanctified. Otherwise, they would not be Christians, for Christ is the name of anointed. This anointing is the grace of the Holy Spirit, he who confirms us with you in Christ and who has anointed us in God, 2 Corinthians 1, 21. And, quote, you are sanctified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. So holy things are anointed. Um, let me ask you a question. Uh, could David have anointed himself king? Could Saul have just solved the whole problem of, oh, darn it, I'm not God's anointed. David is, I'll just anoint myself or I'll just institute my own authority to anoint me. Well, no, anointing comes as the power of God, as God saying that this person is chosen, set apart, or holy. So, when we're looking for this church, it ought to be holy because, well, there's an anointing to bring about this holiness, to mark this holiness, to set it apart, and that implies a authority ordained by God to do the anointing. And I like how Aquinas points out that we can't call ourselves Christians because Christ means anointed. And we can't be Christians or like little Christs um, without also being anointed, though granted, in a smaller way. So it should come as no surprise that when we're looking for the one body of Christ, we should be looking for something that is matter and form. We should be looking for something sacramental, in other words. And we've not only found that it must be a Eucharistic community, and we'll have more reasons for that later, of course, but we also find one that, that it must be a, a uh, sacramental community that has anointing. Anointing of the sick, right? Extreme unction, but also anointing and confirmation, deeply connected with the bringing of the Holy Spirit, the binding together of the church, and the sending out as set apart to be light and salt to the world. Number three, the faithful are made holy because of the Trinity who dwells in the church. For wherever God dwells, that place is holy. The place where you stand is holy, Joshua 5.16. And holiness befits your house, O Lord, Psalms 92.5. So the place which most particularly mirrors the Trinitarian life is actually the family. It begins with and is caused by marriage. Oh, another sacrament, where we have these three people united in love. Um, and many people have shown this, so I won't dwell on this one, but yet another sacrament. Um, the Trinity dwells in us, yes, in the church, yes, but it's mirrored quite completely in the family and through the sacrament of marriage. All right, number four. Lastly, the faithful are sanctified because God is invoked in the church but you, Lord, are among us, and your name is called upon. Forsake us not. Jeremiah 14, 9. Let us therefore beware, seeing that we are thus sanctified, lest by sin we defile our soul, which is the temple of God. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? But if any man violates the temple of God, him shall God destroy. 1 Corinthians three sixteen through 17 God's holiness odd to cause righteous fear of the Lord. We are sanctified because God is invoked in the church through confession. If the church is to be holy, and yet all these people are sinners, then it follows that God must do something to correct this, to make his people holy. And how? Through the invocation of his name, through calling on him. And that's exactly what we do in confession. So confession is entails apostles, 
Why? Well, Scripture tells us. Again, Jesus said, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I am apostling you, most specifically. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So my claim here is no church without sacramental confession, rooted in the power of the Holy Spirit, given in the line of apostolic succession, can claim to be holy because it does not call on the name of the Lord in the way that removes sins. Their sins are retained because they are not relying on this uh, this sacramental um, method of, of healing the brokenness of sin in God's holy people. Which leads us to Catholic. The Catholic Church, this is Aquinas speaking again, that is, the, the church is Catholic, that is, universal. Firstly, it is universal in place because it is worldwide. This is contrary to the error, error of the Donatists. For the church is a congregation of the faithful, and since the faithful are in every part of the world, so also is the church. Quote, your faith is spoken of in the whole world, Romans 1.8. And also, go into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature, Mark 16.15. Long ago, indeed, God was known only in Judea. Now, however, he is known through the entire world. Now, the church has three parts. One is on earth, one is in heaven, and one is in purgatory. Secondly, the church is universal in regard to all the conditions of mankind, for no exceptions are made, neither master or servant, or man or woman, neither bond nor free, neither male nor female, Galatians 3.28. Thirdly, it is universal in time. Some have said that the church will exist only up to a certain time, but this is false. For the church began to exist at the time of Abel and will continue all the way to the end of the world. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Moreover, even after the end of the world, it will continue to exist in heaven. Now, I can already hear it. Ah, see, Catholic means universal. So, right, we're all Catholic. Yeah, yeah, no, hmm? Well, let me quote from our other main man, good old St. Augustine, in uh, his work entitled um, Against the Fundamental Epistle of Manichaeus, chapter 4. The consent of peoples and nations keeps me in the church. So does her authority, inaugurated by miracles, nourished by hope, enlarged by love, established by age. The secession of priests keeps me, beginning from the very seat of the Apostle Peter, to whom the Lord, after his resurrection, gave in it charge to feed his sheep down to the present episcopate. And so, lastly, does the name itself Catholic, which, not without reason, amid so many heresies, the church has thus retained, so that, though all heretics wish to be called Catholics, yet, when a stranger asks where the Catholic Church meets, no heretic will venture to point to his own chapel or house. Such then in number and importance are the precious ties belonging to the Christian name which keep a believer in the Catholic Church. Council of Nicaea was 325. Augustine was born in 354, I believe. So he's born in the wake of the council. Now, if you're familiar with Vatican II, it took a while to be promulgated, and that's with the internet and you know, high-speed transport of all sorts of stuff, right? So the Council of Nicaea is still going out into the world. It's still current. It's still very much awake and alive, the findings of this council, the creed which it, it puts forth. Um, and note how it's understood like, we can just think, oh, yeah, so 1,700 years ago, I'm sure Catholic meant universal, meaning including all the heretical groups, including all splinter sects, anybody who likes Jesus, anybody who wears a cross necklace. No, 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 no. This word had a meaning. It had a context. It was understood, and it was used for a reason. And here, Augustine, living right after the council, says that, yeah, the heretics wished that they were called Catholic. You know, the word which was designated in the Nicene Creed. And yet, at the end of the day, they themselves recognize they're not. They don't dare to point to their own chapel or house of worship. And that's something that does continue today, right? If you go down to, down the street and knock on a door and say, hey, I'm looking for the local Catholic church. Can you give me directions? They're not going to go, oh, Catholic means universal. Why don't you go to the Methodist church? No, 
We know what this word meant. We don't have to pretend that it means something else. This was in the wake of a council, which was dividing the true church from the false church, the church Catholic from the Aryan church. This was meant to be part of the mark of who is in the right and who is in the wrong. One holy Catholic and apostolic that did not apply to the the Arians. It did not apply to the heretical groups. And it was understood by those who came after the council as evidenced in this very quote that Catholic had a meaning and it has the meaning that we all commonly use now. If you tell somebody you're Catholic, they know what they mean. When you say that in the Nicene Creed, even back in 325 AD, people knew what that meant. So no wiggling around this. We will unpack universal and it only becomes more damning for those who oppose the Catholic Church. Because universal, as um, Aquinas points out, includes the people who are in the church on earth. Yes. It includes those who are in, earth, on, in heaven, right? Yes. But it also includes the people in purgatory. So if purgatory is true, and it is, and I've argued for that in a previous episode, and I really don't think that there's any way to deny purgatory, it's a slam dunk. Um, So purgatory is true, and um, we can give you reasons why in the other episode. But assuming that it is, um, wait a minute. If your church or your denomination does not accept purgatory and therefore has no bonds of charity— with those souls in purgatory, then how's your church universal? Like, like, like leave aside the fact that Catholic is actually a designator of a real church. Uh, let's just go with universal for a second. How is it universal? So without purgatory, you aren't Catholic. You aren't universal. And without being Catholic, you are not being identified as that body of believers uh, spoken of in the creed. So without being the right body, how can you have the right head? And if you don't have the right head, then how can you say that you have a valid leadership structure? Um, so I think that alone, right? If it means universal and purgatory exists, that precludes all uh, people who claim to be a church but do not accept purgatory. Okay. Um, oh, it doesn't stop there. Universal. Right? I believe it's cataholis, uh, Latin or Greek, whatever it is. Um, It means according to the whole. According to the whole. Gee, hmm. We're in a council. uh, Oh, an ecumenical council. And now we use a word that means according to the whole. And we're supposed to confess that we believe in in a church which which speaks uh, according to the whole. Hmm, hmm. What on earth would that imply? I got it. Um, I think that if you accept the creed and you claim that you accept a Catholic universal, according to the whole church, then you need to accept the ecumenical councils. How can you say you profess a universal church when you deny what it says when it speaks universally? So, Catholic, you have to accept the ecumenical councils. And if you do, well, yeah, that precludes a lot of denominations. Basically, you're down to to Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican at a stretch, and you know, depending on how we're doing ecumenical councils, uh, the Orthodox only accept a certain amount of them. So we could just push it and say that when the church speaks universally, um, yeah, that, that, that just ends it. But let's move on to epistolic. The church is firm. A house is said to be firm if it has a solid foundation. The principal foundation of the church is Christ. For no other foundation no man can lay, but this which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians three eleven. The second foundation, however, is the apostles and their teaching. Therefore, the church is firm, and it is said in the apocalypse that the city has, quote, 12 foundations, and therein were written the names of the 12 apostles, Revelation twenty one fourteen. From this, the church is called apostolic, Likewise, to indicate this firmness of the church, St. Peter is called the crowning head. I think this is a very difficult passage to deal with, what he's quoting in Revelation and elsewhere. Um, Christ is called the cornerstone, and the apostles are the foundation. We see this foundation in Revelation of Jesus, and on top of it, we have these layers of the apostolic uh, foundation after that. 
Um, if you're a Protestant, you would have to say that Scripture speaks truly. So Jesus is the foundation of the church. And you also have to say that Scripture clearly says that the apostles are also part of the foundation of the church. So if you rejected Christ, are you still part of that? Well, no, of course not. You literally rejected the foundation. Okay. But what if you reject the apostles? Can you keep Christ? No, because they're in one place, joined together. There's a cornerstone, and then there's the, the foundation built around that. So you can't accept Jesus while rejecting the apostles. So if you can't have Jesus without accepting that the apostles are part of this foundation, um, what does that imply? Well, I think that implies that you have to accept not only what the, the, Catholic, uh, the apostles have taught, but the apostolic office, because that did indeed continue. We have Paul specifically saying that first in the church, that thing that we're talking about with the foundation is the apostles. That's an enduring office. And we see, and we'll read some quotes about it, that that does in fact carry on out of the, uh, the age that the gospels were written in. All right, moving on to more good old Aquinas. The firmness of a house is evident if, when it is violently struck, it does not fail. The church, similarly, can never be destroyed, neither by persecution nor by error. Indeed, the church grew during the persecutions, and both those who persecuted her and those against whom she threatened completely failed. And whoever falls upon this stone shall be broken, but on whoever it falls, it shall grind him to powder. Matthew twenty-one forty-four. As regards errors, indeed, the more errors arise, the more surely truth is made to appear. Men corrupt in mind, reprobate in faith, but they shall proceed no further. 2 Timothy 3.8 Nor shall the church be destroyed by the temptations of the demons, for she is like a tower towards which all flee who war against the devil. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, Proverbs 18.10. The devil, therefore, is chiefly intent on destroying the church, but he will never succeed, for the Lord has said, the gates of the underworld shall not prevail against it, Matthew 16.18. There was a time when all churches universally condemned contraception. And this this is an ancient teaching. St. Augustine talks about this. He describes Romans using uh, sheep intestines as condoms. And, I mean, that... These are nothing new. The Romans had uh, abortion drugs that you could purchase and use. <laughs> this is not new. A lot of these problems we think are new are not. So they had contraception, and it was opposed by the church. Um, all churches used to oppose it, um, but now only one does. Was it the Baptist church, which was the strong tower? No, it failed. Was it the Anglican church that was the strong tower? What well, looked like it for a minute, I, I mean, they're in a sense, kind of a leader in the Protestant world, but they fell, and then all the rest of the Protestant churches fell right after that. What about the Orthodox churches? They always talk a big game about being the truth church, about keeping the apostolic witness, da-da-da-da-da. Um, no, they're pretty darn confused. They're in shambles with respect to this question. So there was a strong tower here. When we were struck, only the Catholic Church stood firm. So go ahead and watch with all this LGBTQ stuff. Um, we already see Protestant churches fracturing, breaking apart. The Anglican church is completely capitulated, um, embarrassingly so. Um, what, what's the strong tower? I mean, even with Pope Francis in charge, he is still not bound the church to error, and he won't. I mean, he's even disciplining the the, the German bishops who are, who are pushing this. Um, there's a strong tower here, and I don't think it's hard to find. Thus it is said, they shall make war against you, but they shall not overcome you. And thus it is that only the church of Peter, to whom it was given to evangelize Italy when the disciples were sent to preach, has always been firm in the faith. On the contrary, in other parts of the world, there is either no faith, or at all, or faith mixed with many errors. The church of Peter flourishes in faith and is free from error. This, however, is not to be wondered at, for the Lord has said to Peter, I have prayed for you, and that your faith will not fail. And thou, being once converted, confirm your brethren. Luke twenty-two, thirty-two. 
So let me ask you people who are not Catholics, and listen, I'm not just trying to slam on people. I wasn't always Catholic. I've only been Catholic for a few years, so I get it. I wish somebody said all this to me. Um, do you think this is just a throw a throwaway line in Luke? Like, oh, uh, I don't know. He's just saying, uh, Peter, I'm praying for you. You know, <laughs> love you, bud. <laughs> like, do you think that has nothing to do with us today? Um, do you think that the scripture is really that devoid of meaning that this is just a, a one particular statement to one particular guy with no implications on out? I mean, look at this promise that Jesus Christ prays for his faith not to fail. Has it ever been promised to anybody else in scripture? Whoa. And then he's going to have this special role in confirming uh, his brethren. It, where else are you going to find this? This is new. This is amazing. These are the words of Christ, and we should be attentive to it. This is not a throwaway line, and the early church never understood it to be so. Um, we have many examples of lines of authority. Moses, for instance, an important part of my conversion was coming across the line, do not do as they do, but listen to what they say, for they sit in the seat of Moses. When I read that line as a Protestant, it it struck me. Jesus is affirming a line of succession, and he's commanding these people to listen to them. He's, he's affirming their teaching authority despite the wickedness and evilness of their actions. So, if we already accept, and we must, that that was the case, is it really a jump, especially in light of this passage and others, that we also have a line coming from coming from Christ through Peter? Um, is it really a jump to think that, that we, we have a shepherd on earth? Um, now, God's a good shepherd, but what did Jesus say? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Care for my sheep. I don't think that's much of a jump at all. And when we find out how the church received these words and understood them, it, it leaves no room for, for wiggling out. None. Let me just read you, and there are many quotes, but I'll read you just one or two. This is from Cyprian of Carthage in the 250s AD. You really don't get much earlier than that. It's, well, actually you do, um, but that's very, very, very early. I think we can all agree. So here's what he writes. The Lord says to Peter, I say to you, he says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. On him, Peter, he builds the church, and to him he gives the command to feed the sheep. And although he assigns a like power to all the apostles, yet he founded a single chair, and he established by his own authority a source and an intrinsic reason for that unity. If someone today does not hold fast to this unity of Peter, can he imagine that he still holds the faith? Right? That's, that's his question. That's the question coming from 250. It was so obvious it's a rhetorical question. If you don't hold fast to the unity of Peter, do you really think you even have the same faith? If he should desert the chair of Peter upon whom the church was built, recall those foundations we talked about in Scripture, can he be confident that he's even in the church? So if you leave the chair of Peter... Why do you even think you're in the church? That's not my question. That is a church, that is the question of Cyprian of Carthage from the 250s AD. This is the early church speaking to you, asking these questions, convicting you. But he goes on. Cornelius was made bishop by the decision of God and of his Christ, by the testimony of almost all the clergy, by the applause of the people made present, by the college of the venerable priests and good men, at a time when no one had been made bishop before, when the place of the Pope Fabian, which is the place of Peter, the dignity of the, of the chair was vacant. Since it has been occupied both at the will of God and with the ratified consent of all of us, whoever now wishes to become bishop must do so outside, for he cannot have ecclesial rank who does not hold to the unity of the church. With a false bishop appointed for themselves by heretics, they dare to set sail and carry letters from schismatics and blasphemers to the chair of Peter and to the principal church in which the unity has its source. So we have this apostolic secession. We have the chair of Peter, and we have heretics even early on who claim to have this authority, but he says that that can't be the case because they are blasphemers and schismatics. Why? Because they're, they're going against the, quote, 
principal church, the chair of Peter, in which unity has its source. So if you confess one church, one apostolic church, then the cause of that unity says the people who were given the revelation of the gospels is the, the chair of Peter. That is the source of this unity here. Why? Because it's protected by the Holy Spirit himself. Um, and of course, that's what he quoted earlier, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's God's promise. All right. Um, we're going to take a very brief break here. We get a few more, more quotes. And uh, yeah, more good stuff coming. Okay, one more quote for you guys. This is from St. Irenaeus in 189 AD. And as many people have pointed out, um, the Apostle John has Polycarp, who he teaches, and then Polycarp teaches Irenaeus. Um, so this is, I mean, come on, this is really close. He can't get it super wrong. He's literally taught by the guy who is taught by John. And here's what he says. It is possible then for everyone in every church who may wish to know the truth, to contemplate the tradition of the apostles, which has been made known throughout the whole world. And we are in a position to enumerate those who were, institu who were instituted bishops by the apostles and their successors in our own times, men who neither knew nor taught anything like these heretics rave about. But since it would be too long to enumerate in such a volume as this the successors of all the churches— we shall confound all those who, in whatever manner, whether through self-satisfaction or vainglory or through blindness and wicked opinion, assemble other than where it is proper, by pointing out here the successors of the bishops of the greatest and most ancient church known to all, founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, that church which has the tradition and the faith which comes down to us having been announced by, uh, to men by the apostles. With this church, because of its superior origins, all churches must agree. That is, all the faithful in the world. And it is in her that the faithful everywhere have maintained the apostolic tradition. Okay. The early church witness is just slam dunk. There is apostolic secession, and even early on, we have what I think is, I mean, come on, that's the papacy. Um, listen to this. With this, the whole church, because of its superior origins, um, all churches must agree. All churches must agree with Rome. That is, all the faithful in the whole world. All the faithful in the whole world have to agree with Rome. There you go. That, that is what the early church says. Um, all right, well, let's do a bit of a recap here. We said that we are going to find the right authority. Uh, which authority is correct? So Christ is the head of the church, but he, he shares this leadership just like he always has in every single covenant literally ever throughout the entire Bible. So there is a, there is a leadership, a human leadership on the church that is meant to mirror um, God's will. Um, so we're going to find this leadership, this, this headship, by finding the correct body. And uh, we have four marks. We have one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. So how, um, what, what makes it one? What's one in belief? And Paul reminds us it has to be perfectly one in belief. It has to be one sacramentally, one in the body and blood of Christ. It has to be one in leadership, because how can you be, be one when you have multiple people leading who all of our of equivalent authority. So we have one leader. When Korah goes and challenges Moses, does God say, oh, funsies, we have two leaders. No, there is one leader. And we have we are one in purpose, one in love. This church also is marked as holy. And it's holy because it has the Holy Spirit. It has a means of holiness, sacramental means. And it's holy because this church is set apart. Let me ask you, what church converted the Roman Empire that killed Christ? What, what, what church uh, converted the new world, stood against communism, endured through the ages, ushered in Christendom, stamped out paganism, defended against all sorts of heresies up and down the centuries, converted whole nations, um, just as promised in scriptures, to make disciples of the nations? What is the most identifiable, largest um, uh, Christian group 
it, at any point in history, really. It, it's, the, it's the Catholic Church. In the Old Covenant, it wasn't hard to um, identify that Jerusalem is the holy city. It's literally called the city on a hill. So it shouldn't be hard to identify the city of God, the church. And it's Catholic, universal. So it's universal because it speaks in ecumenical or universal councils. So we heed its universal voice. We have to accept these ecumenical councils where the church universal universally speaks um, it's universal because it's, it's according to the whole. It's not just a splinter sect or a minority view. If you profess the Catholic faith, you're not professing some fringe, splinter, minority view. You're talking about according to the whole. We're not Gnostics. We don't think just a minority of special people got a special revelation to be clued in to the truth. We believe that the church is salt, it's light, it's a city on a hill. We believe in the Universal, Catholic voice, not a hidden, secret, Gnostic. Epistolic. What makes it apostolic? Where should we find an apostolic church? How about the ones which rooted in the apostles? Have apostolic authority. Obey what Paul says. It says, in the church, first are apostles. Do you have apostles in your church? No? Okay. Then it's not the church, not the one that we're talking about in the creed. All right, so if your Christian community does not confess the creed, well, I don't know what to do with you. But if it does confess the creed um, and it's not Catholic, then that's just being hypocritical. Because what one holy Catholic and apostolic is talking about is the Catholic Church. That's what these four things point to. Um, It has an authority here on earth and There we go. That's our defense of this authority. We found the right body. Christ is at the head. The Holy Spirit is his cause of unity. So the authority which Christ has put into his body to direct its members is indeed ordained by Christ for the purpose of unity of truth, for the purpose of uh, discipline, of, uh, of ruling over, of being the shepherd, just like Christ said to Peter. All right, we're going to conclude by dealing with what may have been in the back of your mind. Um, the Orthodox and the Anglicans. At some point, I'm going to do an entire episode um, about the Orthodox. I think that we give them way too much uh, sympathy. Wonderful groups, which I I love to death. God bless them, like uh, Catholic Answers. Um, Really do like the Eastern Catholic Church, and I think that can make you a little bit more... um, more okay with like the Orthodox and Orthodox ideas and more understanding of them. That's all well and good, but, but listen, guys, we shouldn't, we, we shouldn't give so much credit to the Orthodox. I don't think we should hold them in such high regard. Um, so many Catholics, when they get serious about their faith, think that being more serious would mean becoming Orthodox. And it just, No. (laughs) Um, I don't understand the draw. I don't understand the attraction. And I don't think that we should be pandering to the Orthodox in a way which just uh, makes a road for people who don't like, say, the Pope to to apostatize, because that's what it is. It's apostasy. If you leave the Catholic Church for the Orthodox Church, they that that's not okay. Um, one of the earliest issues, believe it or not, was the whole leaven unleavened bread thing. Um, they have trotted out issue after issue, and uh, it's like they don't want to be in union with the Catholic Church. We have bent over backwards a thousand times trying to accommodate them, and they won't join back. I, I see them as just being very petulant and, and difficult. And with the whole bread thing, I'm sorry, tirade, I... I have no idea where they're coming from on this one. Uh, Scripture says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us keep the feast. What feast? Uh, The Paschal feast. What's Paschal mean? It means Passover. Oh, yes, that's what Jesus was celebrating in the upper room. A Passover. Well, what happens after the Passover? Hmm, hmm, read Exodus. It's the feast of leavened bread? No, the feast of unleavened bread. Passover, before you celebrate it, you sweep every shred of yeast out of your house. 
So why on earth would you think that when Jesus says, this do in memory of me, holding up unleavened bread and during the feast of unleavened bread in a place which had every shred of yeast swept out, why on earth would you think that you should then celebrate the Eucharist with leavened bread? Oh, maybe you read scripture and you see that uh, there is one place where Christ compares himself to, to uh, the yeast which causes the bread to rise. But come on. That is, that is terrible exegesis, because what's the whole point of the Eucharist? Well, that Christ appears as bread. So how does he appear in the parable? As bread? No, that's the whole point of the parable. He's not the bread, he's the yeast. So you can't draw a Eucharistic parallel because there's no God to bread, no Jesus to bread in that parable. He's talking about there is a bit of life that comes into this dough and it causes resurrection or rising in this whole lump. So in that parable, the bread is actually the people of God, not Jesus. Therefore, it's not Eucharistic. So that one's out. Um, the whole Passover thing's a slam dunk. The early church used unleavened bread. They changed, even though they claimed to always be guarding the uh, the original Orthodox faith. I don't get it. I think they're completely wrong about this. And if they're going to make schism on something like that, boy, that is, that's not cool. Then the whole, oh, this is going to be a long diatribe. I will try to shorten it. We will hit one more thing. The filioque. Oh, you guys changed the creed. We can't agree with the filioque. Catholic Church goes, all right, cool. You could come in and just not say it in the creed. Like, we're cool like that. You know, we actually just kind of put it in there to deal with a heresy, a resurgence of Arianism. So so we get it. You weren't dealing with that at that time. We kind of needed it to, to make clear to people that Christ is God. But um, yeah, you don't have to say it. That's fine. And they're like, mm, well, we're still not joining. Like, for real? And why on earth was it such a controversy? The Orthodox say, well, the, the Holy Spirit and Jesus, um, one is begotten and one is spirated from the Father. So all the persons of the Trinity other than the Father take their origin from the Father. Um, and Catholics are like, yeah, we know, we ironed out most of the Trinitarian doctrines, bro. Like, w what's your beef? Did we say in the creed that the Holy Spirit or Jesus does not take its origin from the Father? No, we didn't. We said that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Do you disagree that the Spirit proceeds from the Son? The Orthodox are like, whoa, 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 it originates from the Father. Okay, great, whoop-de-doo. Does it proceed from the Son or not? Well, yeah, it proceeds from the Son. Well, yes, it obviously proceeds from the Son. Look at John. It says Jesus, We I think we read it earlier, Jesus breathes on the disciples, the Holy Spirit, boom, caught red-handed, the Son breathing forth the Spirit. So, I'm sorry, were you just assuming that we were breaking our own Trinitarian convictions? Because what we said was entirely in accord with Scripture, it's meant to refute heresy, we told you, you don't even have to say it to come back into the Catholic Church, and yet you persist in your schism. Sorry, Orthodox, I have very little sympathy for you. Um, we try to bring you into unity, and you continue to break up into very corrupt um, national churches. You're mostly under a secular authority, something that we've pushed off. We've made disciples of nations. You've become a disciple of nations. So, Orthodox, it, you, you just need to give it up. It's just pride that's keeping you from coming back. Most of these issues are settled. If they're not, you need to submit to the Roman Catholic Church, as the earliest authority said, and some of your own councils have said, gosh darn it. Anyways, let's move on to the Anglicans. Whew. Remember we talked about how schism is wrong? But, you know, maybe we could disagree about who broke from who, right? Well, not in the case of the Anglicans. It, like, who's in sin? The, um, the Anglican Church or the Catholic Church? We said you can't just uh, divorce your wife and go for the, uh, the, the younger model. Um, that's not cool. Well, he did it anyway by breaking from the church. So they're obviously in schism. This is a church in schism. Also, they replaced the head of the church, the visible head, with the wrong head. You decapitated your own church and you placed the king at the top. What is that? Find me that in the Bible. And next we have a deep Protestant theological influence, which at times and places rejects the reality of many of the sacraments. And then remember that whole strong tower argument that, that Aquinas puts forth, that we should find a church to be the strong tower, completely bowled over by secular ideas, um, flying rainbow flags over Anglican churches, or the ordaining of women. Um, this is not the 
the Strong Tower. This is a schismatic group which had its head decapitated and replaced by the head of state. Um, yeah, guys, don't be Anglicans either. Um, all right, all right. Um, here's a few things that one holy Catholic and apostolic uh, doesn't mean. One, um, the idea that we are one, that the, the church, the, the people in the church will be entirely unified. Um, no, God's people are one in the Old Testament, and they're also quite consistently very disobedient and sinful. We ought to expect the same today. Um, and sure enough, we have lots of disobedient and sinful people. But just like a body remains one or unified even when it's sick, so too the body of Christ um, remains one. It is one holy Catholic and apostolic church, even if we have the cancer of the German bishops and other groups. Holy. Aquinas lays out how the church is holy, and it's holy because it's set apart. Um, God uses common things and makes them holy, like priests, the Pope, the people in the church. All of them are sinners, failures, and frauds. But because they're set apart by God, because they have the opportunity for confession, because we call on the name of the Lord in obedience, um, because we are part sacramentally of Christ's body, that's the cause of our holiness, not ourselves. Trust me, we're not holy. Catholic. Not all speech is according to to the whole, right? Um, when Pope Francis makes an offhanded comment on an airplane, it's according to Francis, not according to Pope Francis representing the whole. So we're not saying that anything anybody says is always according to the whole. It's obviously not. When we speak ecumenically, or when we speak from that position of unity, stemming from the specific office of Bishop of Rome, as we learned about earlier from the early church, that is Catholic. That is from the cause of unity, and is therefore according to the whole. Epistolic. Epistolic secession is not magic. It's not mechanical. It's covenantal. The idea that God would convey the blessings of an epistolic uh, secession on groups that steal it or otherwise gain it in suspect or disobedient ways is doubtful at best. This means that... Um, now, the whole goal of apostolic secession is it's supposed to be a cause and a visible sign of unity. So if you're part of a group that uses this tool of apostolic secession to promote disunity, then you are abusing this. You're abusing it deeply. And I'm looking at you Anglicans, Methodists, and others. Um, and for you, it's going to become not a blessing, but a curse. So that's what we don't mean with one holy Catholic and apostolic. I think you hopefully understand better what we do mean, what Aquinas means, and how this points to one and only one church, and therefore one and only one head, how that points ultimately up to Christ, the, uh, the, the head, the cause of all truth, and the one who we find unity in the truth with, through the power of the Holy Spirit and in the worship of the one true God, the Father. Thank you for listening, guys. Share this with anybody who might not necessarily agree with these things, and I'm always happy to hear your, your comments, uh, questions, uh, questions for the mailbag, or suggestions for further episodes. This, as I said, was uh, an episode that a bunch of you guys asked for, and I really hope it delivered. <laughs> I did my best on it, but I certainly would recommend those awesome resources, people like Eric Ibarra, Swan Sona, Stephen Ray, incredible people who do deep and scholarly work, and I certainly uh, recommend picking up their books. Eric has a new one out, um, reaching out to them, listening to some of them have podcasts. Um, and on this question, they're certainly better than me. So I hope I contributed something to the discussion. Um, keep me in prayer, and I will keep you in prayer. God bless.